Happy 2023, the year of the rabbit, to my dearest friends and colleagues of the Chinese Language Division at the American Translators Association. I hope you all got some good quality R and R during the holidays and are fully charged for whatever awesomeness the new year shall bring. Speaking of the new year, I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that making more money is a standing item on most of your New Year's resolution, especially if you do any freelance work. Money isn't always the easiest thing to talk about. In fact, it can be the most difficult thing in a conversation for various reasons. But how about we challenge ourselves today to venture outside of our comfort zone to talk about nothing but money? The guest we have today needs no introduction, fortunately, or I'd be spending the whole duration of the podcast talking about her professional experience and accomplishments. You'll agree with me once you find out who she is. But instead of just giving you her name, how about I drop you some clues, some less known facts about her? Okay, here we go. She was born in Austria. Grew up in Mexico City and currently lives in Las Vegas, Nevada. She came to the United States on a tennis scholarship. She has an identical twin sister who is also an awesome and accomplished linguist. Yes, that's right. We've got the one and only. Oops, I'm sorry. I meant one of the two and only, Judy Jenner. Hello, Judy. I'm so glad and grateful that you're able to come here today to talk to our wonderful friends and colleagues in the TNI profession. Of course, Jesse. Thanks for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to share what I know and maybe give others a little bit of food for thought so we can make the profession even better than it is. Thank you so much, Judy. I remember back in June of last year. You gave a presentation at a conference in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, about pricing strategies of our work. I went to your presentation, and I was completely blown away by the great and valuable information you shared. Since then, I have been wanting to speak with you on air about it because I feel the information you presented is so powerful and so helpful that. The more people your messages reach, the better it will be for our profession. So before we dive into the deep end today, I'd like to briefly set the stage by having you share with us your insights and thoughts as to why people feel awkward when they talk about their rates. Sure, of course, it's a very sensitive subject indeed. What I know from my ATA background is that there was. An issue, and I believe it was in the '80s, where the federal government, at some point, sent a letter to ATA, and I don't remember if it was a cease and desist letter or if it was initial investigation. I don't know. We'd have to dive into the ATA archives to get those details. But basically, there was a potential accusation of price fixing, and and again, the details were before my time, but. It would have meant the end of ATA if there had actually been a lawsuit or any sort of legal action, because it would have been really, really difficult to defend it. So, of course, when the feds come and say you're doing something we don't want you to do, everybody says we're gonna stop doing that or we're gonna run screaming in the opposite direction, which is pretty much 
as I understand it, what happened here. So basically, I think that maybe the summary could be that we got scared as a profession, which is a normal reaction if you're worried about the future of our association and all the work and the volunteer hours we've put into it. It's a scary thing. So when, when I entered the profession, it was pretty much what you described. We don't we don't talk about rates. Right. It sounds like it's one of those situations where you're once bitten, twice shy. Um, you mentioned the term price fixing. What's your understanding of that in the context of our profession? I'm not a lawyer. I'm not here to give legal advice. I am certainly married to a lawyer and I've picked his brain a lot about price fixing. There's a legal standard, of course, and I looked it up, and what are the elements of price fixing and whatnot? And there has to be some sort of collusion. There has to be some sort of agreement between one or more people saying we're all going to charge the same thing with the intent of manipulating the market, which is what price fixing is, again, without getting into the legal details. But if you and I talk to each other about what we charge, that certainly isn't price fixing. Publishing your fee schedule or your rate sheet or whatever you want to call it online, that certainly isn't price fixing. That's just normal business behavior. I mean, I want to know what people charge when I go on somebody's website. So that's very standard business behavior. And we haven't really done it, maybe, again, because we're afraid. But again, I don't know what memo or what season this is led or the feds wrote, but what they did not mean is that we can't talk about it amongst ourselves and publish our our fee schedule. I've always been a fan of transparency. I don't see the downside of transparency. And I think the final reason we don't talk about it is because money is always a touchy thing yeah. everywhere, right? If we disclose what we bill by hour or by the hour, or by the word, we're basically telling people how much we make. And in our culture, that's just something we don't do as much. Yep. So those are my initial thoughts. I know this is a big subject that gets a lot of people quite worked up. And I, I'm open to obviously different opinions, but I, I do think that going forward, it is a good thing for our profession if we discuss rates amongst ourselves. Of course, without making price recommendations, nobody's ever going to say you should charge this and this because that is actually price fixing. We should absolutely be very, very careful. And I think we perhaps could benefit some of it from some legal advice to say, to know what, what are the limits? What can we actually, what are the words we're not allowed to use, right? So I think that would be some, some guidance would be helpful. Although I think intuitively, we all know what we can do and what we can't do. It's not that hard. Don't, let's not go to an ATA conference and say, hey, we should all charge X. That's that that's what the feds were trying to avoid. And we're not doing that. So we're fine. In my non-legal opinion. <laughs> I can very much understand the logic behind people's hesitation when talking about money. However, and this has always been at the core of your message, and that is to avoid any and all conversations about our rates like it's the plague and to not have that rates transparency is equally damaging to our profession. One common thing that I can think of that almost all newcomers experience is how should they price their services to their potential clients? If they go too low, they get blamed for undercutting. If they go too high, they run the risk of pushing away their potential clients. 
it's a very stressful and confusing thing, in my opinion,、uh, for newcomers. Now, after knowing, in your non-legal opinion, what is price fixing and what isn't price fixing, if a less experienced translator or interpreter comes to you wanting to get some guidance and advice from you or from someone like you who's also a veteran, a linguist, or a very experienced professional. Uh, translator or interpreter, how would you、um, have that conversation? What specific guidance or advice would you have for them? Because I have heard people say that, oh well, just charge enough money to make sure you make a good and decent living. That sounds just too vague to have any meaning. I think. Yeah, I think it's a very good way to say. Look, this is what I charge. These rates, my fee schedule again is public, and I would of course tell people to charge according to their market segment and their skill level and where they're at in their careers, and to not necessarily use mine as the you know obviously they shouldn't use my exact same fee schedule. Although there will be people who happen to char- charge the same as I do, and it doesn't mean that they're price fixing. They just they're just charging the same thing. I didn't tell them to. So I think that that's a good way to frame it to say, well, here's here's my rate sheet, and it serves as some guidance for for newcomers. But again, the question is, what like what is decent? What is a good living? It depends. It depends where you live, which country, even which part of the country you live. It also depends if you have double income, single income, if you have children. So it, it means different things for different people, right? And I don't know what the number is for Chinese language, or Spanish language. I don't know. But I think what we do need to do is to put a little more thought into what that number means for us individually. We we haven't been as strategic, I think, as a profession at the individual level. So there's some room for improvement there. But again, shying away from these big topics, I think, has maybe, yeah, I'm not maybe has definitely been a disservice to our profession, and especially as you said, it's very unfair to newcomers who get. Perhaps blamed for undercutting, but they don't know. They don't know what the what the average going rate is, or nobody's telling them, right? Exactly. Speaking of being informative, I would like to give a special shout out to our former ATA president Corinne McKay. She recently published a blog post reviewing her income of 2022 in real numbers. Lots of good information there, and I think it puts so many things in perspective. And I really appreciate her doing that for our profession. And this blog post can be found on the Training for Translators website. And Judy, yes, I completely agree with you that good living or decent living means different things to different people. And I appreciate your idea that people should be more strategic about pricing their service according to their specific circumstances. The message I'm gathering here is that it should be more about how to charge. And once you figure that part out, you will have the number, the what to charge automatically. I think the most powerful tool we have is each other. If we should have friends and colleagues and mentors who are willing to tackle that subject and to talk openly about that, and it might may may not work for everybody, but I'm certainly happy to do it. And I've had people in my market who I've realized are 
completely on the wrong path with the, the fee schedule. And by that, I don't mean too high because I don't think there is such a number. <laughs> I think too high is not possible until the clients run away. But if the clients still keep accepting it, clearly we're pricing it correctly. But I have told some of these newcomers, look, I'm going to take you to lunch and I want to tell you, you can make a lot more money than this. And this is, this is bad for the profession. I'm not telling you what you should be billing, but I can tell you that the market can bear more than this. And, and oftentimes the, the reaction has been, oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Once in a while, the reaction has been none of your business. And then I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> that's not very collegial, but I guess ultimately it is none of my business. But in a way it is because we're all in this together. And if we compete on price, which we should absolutely not do, it's a slippery slope towards zero. And then ne next thing we know, we'll be paying for the privilege of working. And I, and that this, it does sound funny, but if you have seen some of the ridiculous offers for work on the translation side that have come through recently, you'll it is rapidly approaching zero and we need to do something about it. And I don't... I don't want to be too negative, but there, there is certain, a certain downward trend and that's obviously not a good thing. So it's, it's time to push back and it's time to stand up for ourselves. And if we don't like the fee schedule that a client offers, don't take the assignment. Doesn't work for you say, no, thank you. I will mm -hmm. not be working at that fee schedule. Also, I'm a, yeah, I went to business schools and I studied a lot of economics, but you should be setting the fee schedule. The vendor should be setting the fee schedule. It's not the other way around. So the seller usually sets the price. You know, it's not that the, the buyer usually doesn't set the price. I think it's hilarious when clients come and say, we pay this much. I'm like, wait, but that's like me going to Best Buy and saying, I'm going to give you 1500 for this laptop. <laughs> but you know, when that laptop is 1800 the people who Best Buy, they, they set the price because they're, they're the seller. So I think about that a lot also in terms of how our industry has sort of put us in this awkward situation that oftentimes the, the buyers set the price. And I think we shouldn't let the buyers set the price. <laughs> what a great analogy. It's so cool. I love it. I think as a profession, what we need isn't the agreement on how much to charge absolutely not because that's bad and that's possibly illegal and unethical what we do need is the collective understanding and effort to uphold that the value we offer through our service isn't simply the rates we charge when we compete on rates only essentially we're cannibalizing each other in the short term and in the long run we are bringing down the profession's standard or the image we send out to the general public where our potential clients are so i think it ultimately comes down to how our individual behaviors in terms of pricing affect the profession as a collective so yeah you're right strategically pricing our service is our own business but it is also everybody else's business we are all in this together and we all have the duty to preserve and protect the reputation and the value of the tni profession i agree and that's why i started giving some of these presentations at at big conferences at ata and Najid. that's called it was called pricing strategies early on and then it had different versions thereof and 
people have been really interested in it. It, it, it is controversial, which always surprises me because ultimately we all want to make a good living, whatever good living means to us. So I think this, if we're not going to talk about this, how we can we make a good living, right? But again, there's some baggage with this topic. So just to finish on an interesting anecdote with pricing, if I may, if we have a couple more minutes, I'd like to share a, a pricing story. May I? <laughs> oh, yes, of course. Please do, Judy. Good, good, great. It's always good to try new pricing strategies. It's called, you don't have to charge everybody the same rate, which I think that's why a lot of colleagues are scared of publishing their rates because they want to leave it open to maybe billing different clients, different things. And you're certainly allowed to do that. Actually, every business in the world charges different price points for the same service. For example, if you go skiing on a Wednesday, it's cheaper than if you go on a, on a Sunday. If you go to happy hour, that drink is going to be cheaper than one hour later, 15 feet away same drink right so there's price grid discrimination is perfectly legal but i don't think it should prevent us from from publishing our rates or for sharing them if we feel comfortable with that and you can still charge different people different rates if you want to you can have surcharges you can have ranges that you publish which i like but once in a while i'll try out something new to see how it goes just to see what the market can bear and see if it'll if it works and you should of course only do this if you really don't care if you get this client or not. And if you think it's outrageous, just try it, see what happens. So I tried it last year for an assignment during the ATA conference where, you know, I'm very busy during the ATA conference. It's my favorite week of the year. And I really, really don't want to do any sort of paid work. I just want to give presentations, go to happy hours, have a great time with my friends and my colleagues. But this client was very, very insistent. And she said, well, if we really need you to do this, please, please. It's on top of it at five o'clock in the morning in LA because the client's in Europe. And I said, I, I don't know, this isn't going to work very well. So they said, basically whatever it takes. So, I, so I, I added a little bit to the, to the previous number, which they had paid me before. And then I added a, an early morning surcharge and, and a few other things that I came up with. <laughs> I came up with a number that even for me, seemed a, a tad on the high side <laughs> but the thing is i really didn't want to do it i really i had a i had a tweet up to host i had things to do so i i sent them this number and i thought well there's there's no way they're going to <laughs> say yes to this but lo and behold they said oh absolutely where do we sign absolutely we'll do it so that shows you how much room there is not with all clients of course you always have to price according to your market and and I think I read this client well, even though I, I thought they would they would try to argue and they didn't. And then I also told them they had to give me an, an extra room for for this interpreting assignment because I was sharing their room with my with my sister. So if they, they needed to buy me a second room so I could interpret from there. And they said absolutely. They basically said yes to everything, and they were very very grateful that I was willing to do it. And um, I wasn't that happy because. I was going to have to get up super early and miss the breakfast. But the, the beautiful, the most beautiful part of the story is that they ended up canceling it. And thanks to my cancellation clause, they paid me the whole thing and I had an extra room. I think it really shows you that maybe the market can sometimes bear 
much more than than you thought and and even if this little experiment had gone the other way i think it would it's, it's just still interesting to negotiate when you don't have any perceived risk because you know i didn't really want to do it anyway so this is a risk free exercise for me and even if i'd had to work i was it was very very well paid it was would have been worth missing the tweet up for. So I just wanted to share that because I think oftentimes we don't even share these examples because we don't want to, for some reason, open ourselves up for whatever criticism, negative feedback. I do think we need to be more open, more honest, more transparent about these things, which is why I shared this example. And of course, it doesn't always work out. There are plenty of times where I, I did want the assignment and I, I gave my, my number and it didn't work out. and. The client said, absolutely not. And I said, okay, well, have a nice day. And <laughs> thank you. So uh, you, you don't always get all the assignments that you want. Nobody does. If we got 100% of the assignments that we submit proposals for, we wouldn't sleep. And I don't know about you, but I also think sleeping is a very important. Absolutely. Judy, I love all of your stories. <laughs> thank you so much for spending the time to speak with us today. I wish you a great 2023, lots of business, lots of new clients, and uh, I will see you in October in Miami for the ATA conference. It's going to be a great year of getting together with friends and colleagues.